Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. This is the fourth episode of our Shares Month series, and we're going to be answering all your questions. And to do that, I've got three of our analysts here at the team at Rask Invest. I've got Owen, who you know and probably don't love. I've got Kevin. What? (laughs) Kevin, and I've got Catherine Go, who you met in episodes two and three. So you'll be a little bit familiar with them. But we had some great questions come through and I'll just throw it over to Owen to make sure everyone's aware that this episode is not financial advice. Yes, this episode is 100% maybe not financial advice. So this is a serious disclaimer. If we answer your questions, what we are actually answering is just a general nature. So we're not answering personal advice questions. You need to see a financial planner for that. You can find them online. There are many episodes we have done discussing how to find a financial advisor A lot of the questions that are coming through today involve investing and investing is an uncertain pursuit. So there is risk involved. There is risk of permanent capital loss, although that hasn't happened much in my career because normally you make good decisions before you buy and while you hold a company. If you need to learn more about investing, I would highly encourage you to take our beginner shares course and listen to a few of our podcasts from early on and they kind of set the groundwork for what we're about to do here. Okay, Kate, uh, your host for this episode. Yeah. Not that's, mistaken. That's going to be fun. And just a reminder if you haven't listened to episodes one to three of our Shares Month series, I'd encourage you to go back and do that because it'll set the stage for today's episode. So I just wanted to ask everyone the same question to start. We've gone through the share investing checklist this month. There were sort of five key components on there being understanding what the company does, who runs it, what their moat is, whether they're in a growing industry and what's the valuation. So I wanted to ask each of you, what's the most important item on your personal share investing checklist? So I'll start with you, Owen. So my first thing is making sure that, and Catherine's got a smile on her face here, is making sure that the company is built like a brick shit house. So that means that the company is rock solid, just like the, the dunny out the back. It's built well. And what I'm looking for are a strong balance sheet, so no debt or very little debt, and at the worst, more cash than debt. So even if it has debt, it's got more cash and cash flow, which is something that Catherine's going to talk about in a minute. But yeah, just making sure that it's cash flow positive. So you can check the uh, in the financial statements, which is part of the annual report, you can find the cash flow statement, which is normally the fourth statement out of four. It's the one at the end. People tend to forget this one but it's the most important and look for operating cash receipts or operating cash flows. Right. So making sure there's not too many redback spiders under the hood. Yes. You do not want to park your butt on a redback. (laughs) All right. All right. So Catherine, what is your important thing? Mine is starting at the very top. So understanding the business and knowing what it does, the business model, the different products and services, because I think everything else kind of just flows from there. If you really put the work in to understand the business, you can kind of get an edge. 
That sounds pretty important to me. And what about you, Kev? Yeah, just further on to Catherine's point, it's um, all about the business and the business model for me, making sure that you actually understand it and it's not just, you know, three letters on your screen or four letters on your screen. Um, we're really looking uh, into the business and how does that business model scale and grow? And I think that's probably an important thing that a lot of people have to learn instead of just going, hey, what stock code do I buy? It's actually, what does this company do? And um, I think we can often get a bit distracted when we're looking at forums of just like, what's the hot stock code to buy rather than actually looking at what are some good businesses? Yeah, for sure. To Kev's point, if you just look at companies or if you just look at things on your screen and you think that, you know, TLS, which stands for Telstra shares, is just like a thing that's on your screen and it's not actually attached to a business, the longer you think like that, the greater your chance of losing money in investing, in my opinion. And so you've got to kind of differentiate between that. And as Catherine said, understand what the thing is behind that three-letter symbol. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we'll kick it off with our first listener question from Alex, which was all about share investing jargon. And there is quite a bit in this industry. So Alex was overwhelmed by all the jargon about how a share is performing and mentioned a few things like market cap, valuation, price, price to earnings. And We've mentioned a few of those things, but I thought it'd be really good if we dissect each of those terms. So, Kev, can you kick us off with what does market cap? Yeah, absolutely, Kate. Um, We've all sort of been there as well, like all starting out and it's like reading a foreign language, right? We start off and there's all these terms and then they've all got these acronyms and you're just like, oh, it's a bit overwhelming. So what, what I suggest is people sort of take the time and, you know, slowly one by one start to, you know, dig and find out and learn. Um, but Going back to your question there, market cap is, it's really like quite a simple formula when you break it down. And if you can sort of put it into plain English, like it's it, it's really just the current share price times the total number of shares available for that company. And to use a, a very simple analogy, like we can think about a company as an entire pizza and then each slice is uh, one share. So say for instance, um, a slice of pizza is $2 and there's 10 slices of uh in that pizza, well, then it's two times 10 and that equals $20. Very simplified example, obviously, but, you know, with these companies that we're talking about, you know, say a share price for, for zero is like 120 bucks, for example, and there's say a million shares, well, you just do that simple formula again, that $120 times how many shares are on offer. Why do we actually care about market cap? I think it gives you a really good gauge on exactly how big that company is um, in respect of the industry. For instance, like you could be talking about, you know, a company like uh, one of the big tech companies that just dominates the field, right? And you're like, wow, it's like a a billion dollar company or trillion dollar company. And it's like, how big is that industry? So it's just good to see sort of, you know, how they are, where they sit in the market and go, you know, are they a market leader or are they somebody that's up and coming and is a disruptor to the industry? Mm. One of the things I might add there is that a lot of people new to investing think that Commonwealth Bank shares are $80 and Telstra shares are $3. That means that Commonwealth Bank shares are like 20 times more valuable than or 20 times better than Telstra. That is totally not the case. So going back to Kev's example, it's not what the slice is worth. It's not what the slice of pizza is priced at in your account. It's actually what the total value of the thing is that determines how big it is. So you can have a company with a billion shares uh, at a dollar, or you can have a company with 10 shares at $200. It doesn't mean that the one that's $200 is a bigger company. It's totally not that. So you've got to actually focus on the total value of the company. And that's where something like market cap comes in. 
Then looking at share price versus valuation, we've talked about valuation in our share investing checklist, but when you're looking at your brokerage account, you can see one thing, which is the share price, but then an analyst like Catherine might actually think it's valued at a higher or lower amount. So are you able to explain what you should be looking at with share price and valuation? Yeah, sure. So there's a famous quote, I think it's by the great Warren Buffett, which goes something like, price is what you pay and value is what you get. And then put another way, you could say, price is what you're asked to pay and value is what you're willing to pay. So everyone's assessment of value is different. And typically we buy an item or invest our money into a company if value is greater than price. So share price is what you see in your brokerage account, but the value to you, depending on your assessment of value using a different ratios or valuation model might be higher or lower than that price. And the share price for a company will just change depending on what people are willing to yes, pay. Totally. Day to day in the market. And then in reality, the value doesn't change nearly as often as it does. Price. No, because the company's not just going up 100% because there was a good news article on it and everyone got excited. Yeah. Like for example, when we have recommendations for our companies, Kevin, Catherine and I will get the latest quarterly report if it's a US company or an half yearly or an annual report here in Australia. And it's only at that time that we'll then go back into our valuation model and actually change things. We don't tend to change things every day like you'll see in a share price changing every day. So what if you had two lines on a chart, the price, which is what you see in your brokerage account, which would be bouncing up all over the place, but the valuation would more look like just flat lines, occasionally changing, moving up and down. And when you get to a certain level of your investing, when you actually understand how valuation works, as well as its weaknesses, because it has plenty, you can actually act and in a more civilized manner because you're not just like your emotions aren't up and down one day to the next. So I think that was a game changer for me, um, learning how valuation actually takes place, trying to apply that to every company that I follow. Mm, and I thought I'd also just check in of what's everyone's favorite metric or number when they're wanting to have a look at the health of a company. So what about you, Owen? Yeah, well, as I said at the top of the show, uh, it's <laughs> got to be built strong, Kate. So there's two things here, cash and debt. You can find both of these on the balance sheet. So go to the annual report, go to the statement of financial position or balance sheet, depending on how it's titled. And you can just look, just like a, a mortgage, if a company has 100% of the value of its assets in debt. So if it's got a huge amount of debt, and it's got a little bit of cash, that's not necessarily a bad sign all the time. But I always ask, why? Mm. Why does it have that much debt? Then the second question is, can it sustain it? The types of companies that we invest in, I think all of us here, I think I speak for everyone, are companies that don't have a lot of debt. Because when interest rates rise, which they could in the next five to 10 years, I've heard having a lot of debt in investing being described as trying to play poker with a set of cards in your hand. And then Sooner or later, the creditor, the person that provides the debt, can all of a sudden just come along and rip the cards out of your hand and then you're left with nothing to play. And so debt is often one of those things that in the good times, it works really well for companies. In the bad times, it's catastrophic. So um, as a first kind of point of call, that's where I go. What about you, Catherine? Following from Owen, yeah, I really like the cash and debt thing. Not a thing, but <laughs> balance sheet is generally where I would go first. But another thing is uh, the cash flow statement. So Owen said at the top of the show, Cash is king and you can, you can book all the revenue that you want, but you have to see that eventually turn into cash because that's ultimately what's going to sustain the business. So um, in the cash flow statement, it's generally split into three sections. So you've got operating cash flows, investing cash flows and finance cash flows. So usually just you can focus on uh, the top part at the start. So just operating cash flows and ideally you want to see that positive. So the bottom number 
when they add up outflows and inflows, you want to see a positive number because it means that the company can sustain its operations. Sounds like you've got to know a little bit of accounting to do all of this. Well, it does seem like that, but it actually isn't that hard. Once you've done it once, you've done it many times. Like The operating cash flows, right? The trickiest thing, in my opinion, is knowing the difference between cash flow and profit. Cash flow is what's on the cash flow statement and profit is what's on the income statement. Now, that might sound like a bit of you know, whatever, more jargon. But reality is, you know, a business cannot make a profit but be cash flow positive. So you can have a company that makes a lot of cash, but people think it's not profitable. And so that's kind of your insight. But, you know, to Catherine's point, just go and read the cash flow statement, see how things fall down. And it's just like positive, negative, positive, negative. And then it just adds up at the bottom. If it's positive, that's a good thing. If it's negative, then you got to ask why. Yeah. I remember you um, sort of did an analogy about having your income coming in from your job. And if all the money's just going out with expenses, you don't have much profit left at the end of the day. You might have a like a hundred thousand dollar income, but if you've got a lot of mortgages and private school fees to pay, you might not have much left at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah, don't get me started on private school fees. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And Kevin, yeah, Last just but not least. No worries, Kate. Just following on um, the team's top picks, like mine would be sort of like looking at that cash flow and then going, you know, how does that relate to the top line growth? And what we're talking about there is just that sales. And, you know, I'd probably classify myself more as a, a growth investor, but I, I really do kind of see them as growth and value is very similar things because, you know, if a company um, is, a, is a good business and um, it can't actually grow its revenues, well, then you can't actually grow too much in the future because you're only really then looking for efficiencies in the business model. Like you can, you know, cut expenses and whatever, but if that business can't actually grow to, you know, another store or another country, well, then it it makes it very limiting in um, that company's future and that future outlook. So yeah, that's something that I look for. So top line is another word for revenue or sales. Correct. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And why do they call it the top line? Because it's at the very top of the list. Yep. So listeners, it is at the top of the income statement. The income statement is the first thing that you see when you look at the accounts and it is the top line item. So that's why we call it the top line. So you want to see that growing, right? Yeah, absolutely, Owen. And uh, again, apologies for all the jargon. Um, but yeah, like we'll, we'll sort of slowly dig through all these like little terms and, and get some clarification on all that. No, that's good. And that's, but that's good. It introduces people to the way we speak, right? So it's really important because you're going to, you're going to face that when you read an article and, and whatever. Uh, Kate, back to you. It makes analysts feel a little bit better about themselves having their own <laughs> special jargon. Yeah, that's it. It's code. <laughs> Uh, anyway, okay. So the next question uh, from Megs was all about buying your very first shares. So she wrote in saying, I would like to buy my first lot of shares. I've got $2,000 to invest and just cannot decide on what to invest in. She's been reading and researching and is just going around in circles. Any tips or suggestions? Yeah. So I'll field this one. Megs, this is a great question. Fabulous question. And it's actually the topic of our next episode. So next week, you'll actually get to hear where the four of us um, would allocate some hypothetical money if we did. Um, keep in mind, Megs, that you know when we answer these questions on the show, we are experienced investors and um, your risk tolerance will be totally different to ours. But if I could just say something here, there are over 2,000 shares on the ASX, that's the Australian Stock Exchange, and that's just 3% of all the companies in the world that you can invest in on stock markets. So um, yeah, it's easy to get a There's decision a lot of paralysis. Yeah, it's not just three versions of baked beans. There's like 
50,000. So we understand, you know, it can be very confusing. So you mentioned going around in circles. Uh, Meg, I would say go to the center of your circle, which is a circle of competence. So this is something that we talked about in a previous episode and Kate produced the share investing checklist. It's a PDF that you can get in the show notes to one of the episodes that we just recorded. Download that PDF, fill it out as you find a company and as you work through your investing, fill it out and try and identify the companies that you like, the companies you don't like, and that will be a guide. Uh, There's one other thing that I wanted to add in here, which is the first three years of investing is apprenticeship and it's an apprenticeship by fire. You will lose money. Everyone listening to this will have lost money. And if you haven't, you will very soon. Don't you worry. And that's okay. The key is learn from your mistakes. That's the number one thing to remember. Learn from your mistakes, learn from your successes. I find it very, very concerning when people have a lot of success early on because what happens is you have a lot of success and then you think that you have found the answer. You are the the wonder kind and you are the greatest investor that's ever lived. And then all of a sudden you parlay your money and you make a bigger bet based on something that you've just done because you think it works. And then that bigger bet becomes a bigger mistake. The important thing is to start, learn from your mistakes, make lots of mistakes and make them small. And the quicker you do that, the quicker you'll learn to have a lot of humility in investing. So if I had $2,000, Megs, this is only just my general thoughts, I'd break it up. I wouldn't put $2,000 into one thing. I'd put $500 into the most, you know, the company or industry that you know the best, a big company, a safe company, and just see how it goes. $500, maybe do it this month, maybe $500 next month, or maybe $500 in three months, and just get used to the feeling of having money at risk because it's going to be pretty turbulent at the beginning, but the hardest part is starting. Yeah, and I think you also mentioned recording all of the decisions you make along oh, the yes. way. And yes, we talked point. about that a few months ago in our decision-making episode, using a Google Doc to record your thought process because over three years as you learn more and you go through our free valuation courses and listen to different podcasts, you'll learn a lot that will sort of change the way you think about investing as well. So I think writing down, even if your very first decision is just, hey, someone recommended this to me, it's good to actually note that down. So if it does well or doesn't do well, you can see what led to your decision-making process. So I say it's a three-year investing apprenticeship, if you like. The only way to speed that up is to actually take stock of everything that you do. So I know Kevin's doing this a lot lately is actually writing out why he buys something, which is super important. And even, you know, if you listen to a podcast, write down some notes, use the same Google doc because it crystallizes the wisdom that you get. So listen to those around you and then take notes, interpret it into your own words. And that is so powerful. Like a lot of great investors have blogs. The world's best investors are brilliant writers and it's not a coincidence. I say that so many times is that you know, Warren Buffett's probably one of the greatest writers I've ever read, and he's an investor first and foremost. Uh, Morgan Housel, who we've had on the show, probably my favorite writer in the world, doesn't invest in stocks, but invests in ETFs. So those are just some of the things you can do. Yeah, but great question. Stay tuned for next week, Meg. <laughs> yes, next week's episode is going to be a lot of fun. All right. Next question from Tim is all about picking safe. I say that in quotation marks, blue chip stocks. And we haven't talked about blue chip stocks often on the podcast, but I'll just read his questions and then um, I'll see what you guys think. So Tim's a beginner investor. He's been doing a lot of reading and listening over the last six months and really enjoys the podcast, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. He just wants his first investment to be in a lower risk profile and wants to invest in a blue chip stock with a long-term view. He's thinking 10 to 20 years. 
He just wants to know how to analyze and choose the right one for long-term growth. He's had a look at the checklist, but a lot of the companies he's looking at are large, well-established, and they run and they have successful products and services. How does he go that step further, dig deeper, and actually differentiate between them? Because he wants to choose a company with a decent return and a good dividend for compounding growth. Yeah, it's a great question, Tim. I think we all would love that, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so you've hit the nail right on the head. Dividends and growth, the the holy grail I've written here. So there are only two reasons that anyone should buy shares, in my opinion. That's to make income from the investment, so dividends. And the other one is to for growth, as Kevin talked about before. So when we talk about growth, we're not necessarily talking about the growth in the share price, which is what a lot of people do. Even some professionals confuse growth in the share price with growth in the actual business. We're talking about the business, so sales, which is the top line, revenue, uh, profit. All the fundamentals there that we, that we want to look out for. I mean, like we're, we're really looking for the, the company to actually perform, not the share price to perform. We think that that you know, will follow after the company uh, actually performs. That's it. So if we get a company that's growing you know, 20% in terms of its sales, every year it's selling 20% more, eventually we would expect that to have a higher share price. It might not have it straight away, but maybe in five years or 10 years it does. And so typically, I just want to make a mention here of income. When we talk about income from dividends, they are typically most common with larger companies because the reason a dividend gets paid, in my opinion, is that the company itself has chosen not to take that profit that it made that year and put it back in the business for more growth. It's actually chosen just to send that back to shareholders who benefit from that. So we're typically looking for companies that don't send that money back to shareholders. They're the companies that take that profit from last year and reinvest it back into the business next year or this year for further growth in the future. So those are the two things you look for in investing. Catherine, I'll ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Just to answer Tim's point here is when you're trying to differentiate between companies and learn about them in the first place, I guess, what are the sources that you would use to learn about companies? Good question. I think my first port of call is generally the company website. So just reading what it does, the different products, services, things like that. And then after that, you can go into the annual report. So another primary source, um, the segment information. So you can see the different um, revenue lines. So like, yeah, the different products or geographies it sells in. Um, another good one is a prospectus, which is probably one of my favorites. Makes things really easy. So when a company first lists on the ASX, they have to send out what's called a prospectus to prospective shareholders for the IPO. And it just contains everything you'd want to know, really. So yep. what it does in really fine detail, industry dynamics, competitors, um, market forecasts, and all sorts of things. So other than primary sources, other good things are articles or blogs from other investors to just get a different opinion. And also like a website like Strawman, which is a similar yep. um, platform. Yeah, cool. So um, you mentioned a few things like segment reports. That's part of the annual report, which is obviously issued once a year or annually. In the US, it's called a 10K. So the 10K report is also issued annually. And you can download those from the investor relations part of their websites, or you can go to, is it Edgar in the US? That's right. Yeah. The SEC website. Yep. The SEC website, it's horrendous, but um, you can get the 10K from there. And in Australia, you can go to the ASX website and you can get the report from there. I would just say, you say that many companies sound similar and they are. Many companies like ANZ, which is a bank, versus Commonwealth Bank, they're both banks. 
my opinion is you've got to find out why someone would go with one bank and not the other or why someone goes with this product and not the other. So you can go on forums, online, hear from management, watch YouTube, video reviews, whatever it is, just find out. Kev, I might throw to you for this part. How did you find out about your first investment? So when you were weighing up or were you weighing up all the investments you can make, like what what did you do? Yeah, well, the very first investments that I actually made was way back in the day, probably over 10 years ago now. And they were actually very safe, simple businesses that I could touch and feel and and that I used. And, um, you know, like a lot of people in Australia, I started off with bank shares. And, you know, back then I wasn't an analyst. I wasn't really even an investor. I just um, was somebody that was interested in shares and thought, oh, this seems like a kind of okay business. It seems like a lot of other people like my parents and and other people, friends and family have owned bank shares. And I thought, you know, why not try and um, buy some shares and just start learning? Um, So that was sort of my very first experience. Um, I think Owen loves me, uh, loves me to bring up. (laughs) I'm glad he loves you. Yes, I do. Uh, loves me to bring up a story about um, one of my one of the businesses that I own, and that's called Mercado Libre. So the ticker code for that is M E L I. It's listed in the states, and that company is a company that I found when I was travelling overseas, and I was sort of backpacking um, throughout Latin America. And this is probably about oh, six or seven years ago now. And you know the the big tech companies were really starting to you know flex their muscle and really you know, get embedded into people's lives. And what I sort of saw in the States before I went to Latin America was, you know, how much people were using Amazon and how much people were using eBay. And Mercado Libre is almost like a hybrid of that. And they've got sort of a payment services business in there as well. So, you know, when I was down in Latin America, there was hardly any internet. There was, wasn't much sort of, you know, e-commerce or anything like that. So it's a bit of a mix between sort of Amazon and eBay. And I thought, you know, as this continent develops as the technology develops. I think, you know, people are going to be using this service and the convenience of uh, online shopping more and more. So something that I sort of latched on and um, got pretty lucky there. Yeah. So basically you saw the opportunity, people would be using this in the future as the internet rolls out. There were case studies of things that have gone before. So that's a clear value proposition for potential consumers and potential customers, right? Yeah, it was just like, uh, I think some of the countries, they were just starting to get a little bit of traction. So, you know, they were getting in there and some people were buying things online and they're all sort of the early adopters, you know, like um, I think everybody kind of remembers sort of the first thing that they bought online and was like, oh, this is kind of exciting, but also kind of scary. It's like, is it going to come? Is it not? When's it going to come? But then slowly as uh, these businesses get scale, they start to offer, you know, cheaper prices, more convenience. And, you know, I thought that was a really big tailwind for this company. Cool. Yeah. And it's interesting. I I think it's good to keep in mind that ideas don't have to just come from trawling through forums or Twitter or the internet. If you have your eyes open when you're in the world, you can actually see a lot of great businesses that way. And you mentioned bank shares. I realized that we probably didn't actually answer the question of what is a blue chip company. So if you haven't heard of that acronym before, Kev, what is a blue chip company, the way we use that terminology in Australia and a few examples maybe? It's probably like the the companies that are super safe, super reliable and make up usually a very large portion of people's portfolios or holdings. So we're talking about, you know, things that are like really dependable, like businesses that, you know, everybody uses every day, their business models work, they make money and they might not go up, you know, 100% or 50% every year. And, you know, I like to use sort of that cricket analogy where they're hitting singles 
every single year rather than going out and trying to take on the the world in a 2020 match and trying to hit sixes and fours because you know every time that you you sort of swing out on that it just doesn't have that consistency and looking at a compounding calculator it's those guys that can really hit singles year, year on year and deliver you know that solid growth every year because that base slowly builds and in five to ten years that's you've got a company that's worth quite a lot. So in ex- Australia, that could be examples of blue chip would be? I think most people would probably refer to probably the big four banks, um, maybe the, the supermarket giants, um, Woolworths, uh, Wes Farmers, maybe even some of the, the big miners as um, you know, our country is you know, really built on, especially like the west of the country is built on you know, BHP and Rio Tinto. So I'd say probably those companies that would be what people would be referring to. Yeah, and all the companies that have uh, given the retirees in Australia great portfolios over the last dividends thirty years or yeah, so. Dividends and franking credits. Dividends, yeah, not blue ribbon. People confuse blue chip with blue ribbon. Trust Do me, they? it happens. Like Catherine, you're looking at me funny, but people say blue ribbon. Um, I think that's an ice cream. Yeah, it is an ice cream. I was thinking ice <laughs> cream. It's a very delicious ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> Um, cool. Did you have anything else you wanted to add to that question or move um, on? No, I think that's about it. Just um, we put safe in air quotes because even though we talk about blue chips and we talk about being sensible, remember that the share market is built, there's a layer of emotion that sits between common sense and and your investment portfolio. And that emotion is driven by other investors who may not you know be as rational as you. So even though a blue chip like CBA is going to pay dividends most years, there are some times when CBA shares will fall and that's okay. Just keep an eye on the business. And safe in the past doesn't mean safe in the future. Yep. Just look at like any of the big <laughs> um, photo companies like Kodak. Yeah. Um, where are they now? Um, they were blue chips once, right? So keep that in mind. Awesome. The next question was from Jared about paying tax on shares. So I've got a question on paying income tax on share growth. Say you have a share portfolio worth a million dollars. That'd be pretty sweet. You have 10% growth that year, which would also be great. You then have to pay 30 odd grand in tax. Is that right? How am I supposed to afford that without selling some shares and then incurring capital gains tax? Okay, let's just unwind that math yeah, quickly. For, I think we need for to. For all the listeners. So, Jared's saying if you had a million dollars invested, it went up 10%. So, that means from today till a year from now, it went up 10% or $100,000. And he's used the example of a 30% tax rate. So if you made $100,000, you know, growth in this question, do you pay $30,000 of tax, which is 30%? The answer is no. So you don't pay capital gains tax, which is the increase in your investment on shares until you sell. So this is one of the big advantages of being a direct share investor because you can control when you buy and sell. Unlike if you're, when you're in an ETF or in a managed fund, that's not up to you. That's up to someone else. Typically, it's built on rules or the fund manager's decision-making. So this is one of the advantages of being a private um, investor in individual shares. So there are two types of taxes you pay, typically, in Australia, which is income tax on dividends, and you have capital gains tax when you sell. One of the massive advantages for long-term investors over traders, people who have a short-term focus, is that after a year of holding an investment, you only pay capital gains tax on half of the gain. So in this case, a $100,000 increase, if you sold it in one year and one day, your tax, your 30% tax rate would only apply to $50,000. 
So you're paying 30% of $50,000, not 30% of $100. So this is a decision you have to make when you are investing for the long term is, you know, people say, oh, well, it's hit my valuation. You know, I CBA shares are now at my valuation, so I should sell. Well, there are two things you need to consider. One, where do you put that money once you sell? So even if you made a gain, where do you invest it? Do you have another idea? Two, does that new idea outweigh the cost of paying tax? Because if you sell, you're going to have to pay the tax on the gain. So oftentimes, I think all of us in this room are extremely long-term focused for this reason. Well, not just for this reason, but this is one of the big benefits, right? Maybe I sell one or two shares a year. Uh, that's the reality. It's not because I hate tax. It's just because we, I prefer to let great companies do their work. Does anyone else have any insights on this? Yeah, I think it, great businesses take time to really build out that advantage and to really get stronger and stronger. And I think, you know, if, if you're selling a, a great business, which early, and I've been guilty of this many times, is like, you know, you think, oh, the share price has gone up so high and oh, I might take some profits. But, you know, I've probably regretted that decision for every strong business that I've owned because if the business model works and um, if everything else lines up and the management are, are really competent and um, executing well, well, you know, that horizon and that runway is actually very, very long. And don't just not sell because you're going to have to pay tax. Mm. You'd rather share 30% of the profits with the ATO than cop 100% of the loss if it falls. So don't necessarily just avoid selling because you're worried about tax. That's just an inevitable part of investing. Good question, Jared. And if you need any more information, you can go to our website where we've got information on capital gains tax, income tax, and everything like that. It's good to be able to differentiate between the two. Yeah, that's Otherwise, it. you might be really worried about paying tax when you don't actually have to pay any because you haven't made a sale. That's it. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Okay, so the next question from Zach is about mergers and acquisitions. And that's another thing I know we haven't actually spoken about on the show before, so it was good to get this question. So, Zach asks, what happens to shares held in an individual company if that company goes through a merger or is acquired by another company? Yeah, so mergers and acquisition, what do, what do those two words mean? Uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other, Kate. So it is the same thing. So a merger and an acquisition is effectively the same thing for your investment. The merger is when two companies come together. An acquisition is when a bigger company typically overtakes a smaller company. So like if McDonald's wanted to buy, wanted to own KFC, then they go and buy the KFC brand, um, that's an acquisition. Or if they came together and they worked harmoniously, you might call it a merger. But basically it depends on what's being offered. And the way you find this out is when the acquisition or the merger is announced, if your company is being taken over, go and read the document because it will tell you how much the acquisition, so if your shares are a dollar and then there's an announcement that it's going to be, you know, for what they call it, 50% premium, it might mean that you're going to get 50% more um, than the shares were worth yesterday when the acquisition goes ahead. Go and read the documents and it has all of this detail. It's announced to the ASX, so you can find it um, on the ASX website. It might be mailed to you or you can find it in, you know, in the news section of your shareholding. Go and find out what exactly the details are because there are two ways an acquisition is typically paid for. Okay, so imagine Kate Limited. My company is going to buy Kate Limited. So Owen Limited is going to buy Kate Limited. Mm -hmm. I make an announcement and I say, I'm going to buy you. You have to disclose that to the share market. And I say, in my announcement and in your announcement, we're going to say, I'm buying your company for cash. And then there's the other option is, instead of giving you cash, I'll just give you shares in my company. So we'll absorb your company, but we'll give you 
shares instead as what called consideration. So Kevin, I might throw it to you, mate. Can you explain what happens when a company doesn't pay cash? So it's paying with shares or script. Yeah. So basically what happens is the value of the company, say if it was $10 million or whatever, then they would give you shares that are worth that 10 million or whatever premium there is, if there is a premium on the takeover. So that just means that, you know, if the company really wants the smaller company, then they might pay overs for that. And, you know, then what they'll do is instead of giving you cash for that, which Catherine will explain in the next example, um, they'll give you shares. So what they'll do is they'll give you, um, for instance, going, back to the Owen Limited and the Kate Limited example is Kate would get Owen Limited shares instead of cash for the business. So, and it just means that like um, there's no right or wrong here. Like some people like to own shares in the bigger business um, after some people prefer cash. That's a very personal decision. But, you know, with investing, you've always got options. And um, usually with a takeover or a merger or an acquisition, there's usually a chance there where the share price has already moved close to the acquisition price. And you can actually sell out if you don't want shares in the new company. Right. So say if an announcement was made that there's an acquisition taking place at $1.50. Typically what happens on the share market the day that it's announced is the share price goes towards $1.50, right? Correct. Yeah. Maybe like $1.40 or $1.45 or something like that. And yeah, you might not get you know the exact full amount, but there's also uncertainty whether or not that deal actually goes ahead. And usually that could take months. So uh, what a lot of investors do is they go, all right, like um, I think, you know, I don't want to own um, shares in the new company. Um, I've got a pretty good price for my shares um, and I can sell out right now. Waiting for the acquisition to take place, you could just sell your shares in your brokerage account after they've jumped. Correct. Or you could wait and do nothing and then um, wait for all the docs to come through, wait for all the, the offer to be finalised. And then what will happen is you'll just get issued new shares. Your old shares uh, in the existing company will get cancelled. And then um, after a while, the new shares will appear in your brokerage account. Yeah. And the thing is, the deal might not go through. There's a risk that it doesn't go through. So you can choose to sell immediately and take your gain, but that's totally up to you and your assessment of what's going to happen. How about, Catherine, what happens when a deal is announced and the deal is funded by cash? So it's probably the more common of the two approaches, cash. And it's usually when, say, like an overseas company is acquiring like an Australian company or it's like private equity. Um, so they'll often offer cash. So in all the announcements in the documents, they'll say, uh, we're going to acquire, for example, Coca-Cola Amatil, which was an ASX company until I think it was this year got acquired by the US big giant. Um, but yeah, so they'll say we're offering to buy this company for X amount per share. Yep. So generally uh, it has to go through a lot of regulation, shareholder approval, but after, say, a few months, then if it goes ahead, then that money will hit your bank account, I believe. Yep. I don't think they send checks anymore. Yeah. No. Not that I've heard of, no. but you don't really have a choice. If you don't sell, you just, Yeah. I know my, my nan was always frustrated when she thought she should have a choice as a shareholder that um, if there was a takeover, she should be able to reject it, but uh, they don't really care about the tiny shareholders. Yeah. Unless there's a vote, which is, it tends to what happens, but um, you know, you have to make sure that the big shareholders are, are want to make the same decision that you, you do and vote the same way. Because mm. if you've got 0.0001% of the company, yeah. it's not, you don't really have much sway. Just make sure when any of this stuff happens, as with everything that we've talked about before, just make sure that your brokerage account is updated and the share registry, the, the company that manages your shareholding, which might be Computer Share, Link Market Services, Boardroom, any of those companies, 
that they've got your tax file number and they've got the correct bank account details. Yeah, sometimes there's a few more tax considerations. I know there was some more complex sort of takeovers and mergers in the recent years that investors had to work through this whole PDF document to work out if they had this, then what is their value now? What's their cash base? And it can become a bit more challenging. There was an example of Westfield, which many people know as the shopping center giant, that was bought out by a company called Unibail Rodamco. That's an overseas company, right? But they wanted to offer the Australian Westfield shareholders shares in the new company, the combined company. And um, these, I think it's UBW is the ticket code? URW. URW, makes sense. (laughs) URW, um, they listed a version of those shares on the ASX, the Australian stock market. So you could get exposure to the company that you once owned, which is Westfield. But it was a complicated Mm. transaction because it's an overseas company acquiring an Australian company that was then going to list its shares in Australia for Australian investors and they're linked to overseas shares. So it gets very complicated, but basically the company does a very good job. They have to do a very good job of explaining exactly what you stand to gain. Yeah. And I I just think, especially in that case, for some people, it was a lot more hassle than it was worth to hold on to the Australian version of the shares. I think you had to pay a tax in France or something on the income. Yeah. There's some weird stuff that goes on. So just, it's, it's all in the docs. Just take a look. We are, um, so some people love acquisitions because typically what happens is the deal, the only way the deal goes ahead is if the, the offer to buy the company is at a higher price. But I often get really frustrated because I and we tend to invest in companies that are growing really good companies. And then even if a company, a big company comes along and buys them out for 50% more than the shares were worth yesterday, sometimes I'm annoyed because I think this company is going to be worth 10 times that amount in 10 years, but we don't have a choice. We just have to kind of accept that that's the money that we get and then we have to pay tax on the gain. Back to the sec- then the question beforehand. So yeah, acquisitions can be good, but I've had it too many times when my companies have been bought out. I don't know, maybe we're doing something right. <laughs> all right, all right. So final question for today's episode, a question from Suli, using external analysis tools. So asking any thoughts on using tools like Simply Wall Street for um, to assist in your share analysis. I don't know if you guys any use any external tools like this? Yeah, we definitely do. Um, but like going back on the first thing, and it's a great question by, by Sue Lee, is um, we often talk internally about this concept we call mosaic theory. And it's really just think about it as like a big wall um, as our investment thesis. And, and every piece of information that we get is just a little tile that we put on that wall. So it's important that not to get too fixated on one specific element or one specific fact. Um, and w- what we believe is when we do the work, when you're learning about the business, when you're learning about the company is, you know, every piece of information that you get is one little tile that you can put up on that wall. And then, you know, hopefully over time, whether that's weeks or months or even years, like you start to add piece by piece of information. And uh, I think a lot of these tools that are quantitative and what we mean by that is just really dealing with numbers and, and hard facts is like, it does help you understand the business, but it doesn't, it's not the complete picture. Like it might be, you know, one part of the wall or one part of the mosaic. And like our style is really more of a a bottom up approach and looking at fundamentals of the business. And, you know, we're really digging into the business model and going, how does this business make money? You know, how, what are, what do their customers think about it? We think that's where the, the real gold is. And we're looking for that quality side and how we can actually articulate that quality in the business. And we think that, you know, that accompanied with that long-term investment horizon and with time on our side, that's the biggest advantage that we have as investors. 
as investors? So I know the guys from Simply Wall Street. I know them pretty well. And I think what they've created is brilliant. They're a um, really smart group of engineers. Personally, I don't use the Simply Wall Street platform. Like Kev said, I go straight to the source documents or try to find um, all of the, the things that I want to find out online because I think there are a million brokerage accounts in Australia now. So that means that there are a million investors who have the same set of information. Globally, there would be many, many millions, probably hundreds of millions of investors. If you have the same information as hundreds of millions of people, what's your perspective and how is it different? And if everyone has access to the easiest things, then everyone is going to make decisions based on the same things. And so we're trying to find the information that no one else has without it being insider information, which is illegal, of course. We're looking to piece together that mosaic quicker than anyone else by using things that no one else can see or few people can see. So like to Kev's example, like imagine, you know, that old, the draw between the lines, like you'd like draw this line to that point from that point. Connect that the point. dots. Connect the dots. That's the one. <laughs> what am I thinking? Con- lines. Um, connect the dots. Imagine that if you zoomed out, it, it actually is a picture of an elephant, right? Mm. We're trying to work out that that is actually an elephant before we've connected all the dots. And the quickest way to find out before everyone else is to use different information. So we're looking for different things. And so tools like Simply Wall Street are great because they help you avoid, a bit of slang here, Kate, they avoid waking up feeling like a wet towel. Um, I think that's the saying. No, I'm over like I'm, a wet I'm over like a wet towel. There we go. I stuffed it up. You stuffed it up. But okay, so you don't want to wake up feeling hungover as a wet towel realizing that you shouldn't have bought a company because it's got a huge amount of debt or that it's you know not growing as fast as you th- thought it was. And the easiest way to get insights like that is to use tools that help you just spot things really plainly and simply. And so you can use a tool like Simply Wall Street as part of your filter or your checklist. So you could say, I don't want to invest in any companies with lots of debt. Then you could go onto Simply Wall Street or you could go onto many of those platforms and you could say, Give me a list of companies that don't have debt. And then you can start your research from there. Mm. And I think that's a great way to build filters and checklists and, and start your research. But to Kev's point, and this is sorry for the long waffly answer on my end, is um, oftentimes you've got to do the work yourself or rely on someone who's done the work and you trust. Anyhow, that's what, that's what we kind of do. Simply Wall Street, made by Al Bentley and his team. They've got a free account if you want to go and check it out. Mm, and I think you've interviewed them on the Investors Podcast before. Yeah, I spoke to Al on the Investors Podcast quite a few months ago. You can find out how he built that business, you know, all the things that they do behind the scenes and, and the vision for it. I think they've got, they would have to have over 3 million free users now, or free accounts, which is huge for an Australian company. So hmm. we wish Al and his team all success and um, conquering the world. <laughs> um, yeah. So cool. Great question, Suli. It's, um, it's a really popular tool. Um, and yeah, you can find out more on their website, I guess. Awesome. Does anyone else have anything they want to add before we wrap this show up? Yeah, Kate, what's your number one pick, stock pick? Oh, I think you're going to have to wait one oh. more week for this. Jeez, the cliffhanger. <laughs> the cliffhanger. It's it's super wild. Okay, it's going to be a wild pick, we've, we're promised. So <laughs> that's a good one, Kate, a good way to end the show. So listen in next week. We've answered your questions. Next week, we'll have a hypothetical portfolio. Yeah, stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. 
If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rask.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. 